0: This is the Roast and Reason podcast. Join your host, Andrew Boyer, as we explore the world of specialty coffee. So grab a cup of your favorite coffee, and let's dive in. Welcome to Roast and Reason. Hello, fellow coffee lovers. Welcome back to another episode of the Roast and Reason podcast. Today, I have a very special episode of the podcast for you guys. Today, I'm going to have the first ever guest on the podcast with me. Tom Hanlon Wild is a friend and a member, employee, and co-owner of Equal Exchange, which is an employee-owned co-op here in the U.S. that focuses on bringing fair trade products to the market. You may already be familiar with Equal Exchange's products that include tea, coffee, chocolate, and nuts. They have a bunch of other products as well. I would definitely recommend that you check out their website, which is equalexchange.coop, to learn more about their mission, to check out their products, and even to purchase some products online. Tom has decades of experience working in the fair trade world, helping bring fair trade coffee and other products to market, and partnering with coffee growers to help improve their products and their lives. Last week, we spent a lot of time discussing fair trade and other coffee certification programs, so there's really no better person to have on the podcast with me this week then Tom, to talk about this further, talk about the living and working conditions of coffee growers, and to discuss his experiences uh, in the industry and in his work over the past couple decades. So without further ado, I'm really excited to welcome Tom Hanlon-Wild to the podcast. So first of all, Tom, thank you for agreeing to come here today and be on the podcast. Um, and I guess let's just start with
1: Tell us what you do in the coffee and fair trade world. Yeah, well, happily, and thanks for having me. It's a real privilege for us to get to talk with you. So, uh, yeah, I've been with Equal Exchange since 1995, and Equal Exchange was one of the pioneers in um, developing bringing fair trade to the U.S. marketplace. So, starting tea and coffee, and I moved to Oregon in 1998 with my wife Jennifer, and I opened a Western office for us to work with the, you know, activists and. and uh, People in the food industry out in the West to like grow the fair trade movement.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So currently I'm involved in uh, with a fair trade group in Canada, and that also is about, has 16 years of experience up there, and I'm doing that work to really grow the fair trade market in Canada for that. And that group started brought fair trade to the chocolate industry,
0: so 10
1: here. of bringing yeah fair trade standards to cocoa and chocolate.
0: So you mentioned coffee, chocolate, tea. What else do you guys deal in with your organization, either in the U.S. or Canada?
1: Yeah, so our organizations deal with, um, of course, sugar as well, because the sugar cane industry from the days of British colonial slavery has a really deep, dark history. And so we've really tried to bring fair trade and social change to that growing system. And then in the more recent years, we've been working with banana producers in Ecuador and Peru brings up fair trade minimal prices to those growers and cashew farmers and um, cashew farmers in India and Honduras and El Salvador because that is a place it's another place where consumers spend a lot at the grocery store and there hadn't been a lot of transparency about how those small scale family farmers are getting more fair price for what hmm. the consumer pays. So we're working in that as well. It's been exciting. Hmm. Yeah. So what originally drew you to this kind of work? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, sure. I mean, I went to went to do studies for Latin America and economic justice. Just in the eighties, seeing both the wars that were the U.S. was involved or sponsoring in the in the Americas, but also the change in trade from an industrial Northeast to a more global economy. And it's good to have good neighbors. That's how you have a good neighborhood. So, um, so I went to study that. I did work in government. Um, in the development side of things, and I did work in the private sector. But what I like about fair trade is it, it doesn't de- depend on tax money or donations to do good work at the grassroots level with rural communities. And it's not a business that's only interested in making more for the bottom line. It really brings that whole idea to get a more holistic approach to like how are you voting with your dollars mm-hmm. and what kind of world you want. So and food's key to that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, so
0: what? What is the what would you say is the main goal or objective of your organization?
1: Yeah, I, I really think we're trying to get people to think about what their wh- where their food comes from and get small scale family farmers more of that grocery dollar, right? So that conscientious consumption, that vote with your dollars approach yep. to to eating, but then also that trying to replicate on a, in items that are traded internationally that really nice experience you have when you go to the farmers market or a local artisan store to know who's growing your food or know who's making your product and then be, be getting your money more directly to them. And of course, in places where, in, in crops where there has been a history of injustice and um, and uh, abuse, like and if you say sugar cane, it's amazing historically what has happened in that industry. I mean, the, the Guatemalan coffee farming families... Of the 19th century were pretty much in were b- renovated or or renewed forced labor in hmm. the coffee market as a t- terrible system there and then the um, that can, and the chocolate industry today still suffers from a whole lot of forced labor of miners in West Africa and so you take those crops that are globally traded widely consumed and unjustly made right and you say yep. let's do something different to really address this system and have a more fair more transparent supply chain hmm. yeah. very cool.
0: So what what countries or growing areas do you focus on? You've mentioned a couple of them already, but um, which ones do you focus on in terms of coffee? Which ones do you focus on in
1: terms of some of the other products? Oh yeah, great question. I mean, certainly when w- our, our group started with coffee from Nicaragua and um, during the wars in Central America in the mid '80s, and so we broke the U.S. embargo against Nicaraguan coffee by bringing it into the country here, hmm. and um, and developed that solidarity effort. At, also in El Salvador as well at that time. And uh, Franz von der Hoff was a German pastor who was organized grassroots community in Oaxaca, Mexico. Okay, And his was re- he really was a leader in bringing fair trade to the food world in the late 70s. And so we, we were one of the first U.S. importers of, of that coffee from there because it had this real so- strong social justice component. And so... With the Nicaraguan group, with that Mexican group, and then with Peruvian farmers in um, in the north of the country, northern Peru, the whole Pura, uh, uh and uh, Hyene Valley, we worked with those growers since the, hmm, yeah, since the mid nineteen nineties. Okay. Yeah, and that we are still real active in there with chocolate. We worked closely with the cooperative in the Dominican Republic that went from eighty farm families just wondering what to do. Right now there are 7,000 family members and it's wow. a leading exporter in the DR. So it's really been an amazing change that when you, you think, hey, could we be helpful here? And those farmers built a lot for themselves. Yeah, they were, yeah. They, we also work really closely with a group in Kerala, India, so the uh, West Coast. Okay. And they grow both excellent tea and cashews as well. And it's been a nice, it's been impressive to watch those farmers. They're, Exceptional growers, very cool.
0: So, why? Let's talk a little bit about fair trade. So, why should the average consumer in the grocery store here in the U.S. why should they care? Why should they buy
1: fair trade? What, think, what does that do for for the growers? I, I think now consumers have caught on enough that that um, that fair trade is a tool to decide how you want to vote for your dollars. The thing that we really like about the aspect of fair trade that we're doing is that it works with democratically organized, small-scale farmers. And I think that's what people mostly think about when they say, who's growing fair trade food, right? It's a family that lives on the land they they farm, and most of the labor used to run the farm is from the household. It's mom, dad, grandpa, maybe the grown sons or, or daughters, that, that that's who's doing the work. They're growing their food, and they're growing the, a crop like coffee or uh, sugar or or, or cocoa. And, like, those, you want to get more money back to those growers, and you definitely want to make sure that that farm family gets a fair price because you're paying a lot at the grocery store, and how do you know the grocery store and the grocery store distributor and the manufacturer and the importer and the exporter that all those people are being fair back to the farm? Yep. Fair trade's a really good mechanism to do that part of it. You know? okay. So that's why I think when you're looking for that kind of system below with your dollars, that, that really, it's an excellent tool for that.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with yeah, you. Yeah.
1: And so, it, sorry, go ahead. I'll let them talk a little bit more because the average farm, small scale coffee farming family, gets seventy to eighty percent of its cash income from coffee, right? And now a lot of their household consumption is like I said, food that they grow, right? Their energy comes from the shade trees that they trimmed to so that the coffee could grow under the shade canopy. The um the, the protein that they eat is raised on the farm there, right? So that household is is more uh, much about much more than coffee but coffee is the main source of income it's what buys the school supplies and what buys medicine it's what buys transportation you know to get to see relatives or or buy go down and buy supplies so like to get a fair price back to the, that farm family that's growing something that's delicious yeah right, is, is is the least we can do and i think fair trade's great in saying hey this group this coffee came from a a democratically run cooperative of small scale farmers, and more money got back to that group. Yeah, sure. So,
0: especially in the coffee world, there's this you know, coffee is treated as a commodity, there's this C price, commodity price of coffee, which sometimes doesn't even cover what it costs to actually produce coffee. Yes. So, what is fair trade? Fair trade pays the growers a better, more fair uh, price for their coffee. How how much of that is inflated from the the commodity price, if you will?
1: Yeah, no troubles at all. So one of the aspects of fair trade is to have a fair trade minimum price, right? And the most known certification that's out there in the market uses a U.S. dollar sixty per pound as the fair trade minimum price. If it's organic coffee, you pay above that. Sure. You pay that plus more. If you pay if it's high quality coffee again, it's going to be that plus the organic premium plus the quality premium. So that dollar sixty is a minimum price. And then as the market goes up, the price goes up, but those premiums stay on top of the world market price. Okay. Right now the world market price is probably $1.26. So the differential to a small-scale grower is it's substantial. Sure. Right. And then if when the market's at $2 or $3 a pound, those quality inter- premiums go on top of those. Uh, the other the certification system we, we use mostly now with Equal Exchange and and the group in Canada, La Siembra. Is the small producer symbol, which is an evolution of the fair trade system that's most well known to say it's only small scale growers. It has higher prices built into it. So okay. A $2 minimum, the 30 cent organic premium, and a 20 cent all the time fair trade premium for the grower groups. And I think that's so, those, so again, that's a good thing to think about. Like when the price goes up, the fair trade market price stays above it. When the price yep. goes down, it only goes down to what's calculated to be the minimum product or a uh, uh, production more than covers production costs okay and that's where that two dollar figure comes from i think the other the other important aspect to it that we really like is because it's democratically controlled organizations those growers are deciding what to do with that money and that's a real big difference than if you have a big organization that's saying we'll give you a price and you spend your money on this this and this or we'll give you a gift and pay you a little extra Hmm. Like saying, no, farm people here want to know where the coffee's being grown. And if it's being grown by small-scale farmers, you want to make sure you take, they're taken care of. You get the money back to that co-op, that co-op sits around and decides how to spend those extra dollars. And that kind of democracy building and economic justice discussion, to me, is one of the most powerful things I've seen us be part of. So Yeah, yeah,
0: I can, I can definitely see that being as
1: a very powerful, I mean, it puts the control back at the grower level. Back at the grower level, and two years ago, I was in in Northern Peru and Piura at the annual general meeting of one of the grower groups that we work closely with. You know, it was so very nice to see the forty delegates. So two people from twenty different communities there, and they had the, you know, here's how much coffee we sold. Here's what the market price was. Here's what we got paid. The Equal exchange was a big part of the uh, the fair trade premium. The, um, also, they had an organic premium. They decide how do we spend the organic premium? Do we want to spend it on Increase productivity? Do we want to expand on getting new members, right? Do we want to expand it on quality control programs? They have that discussion. And similarly with the fair trade premium, do we want to spend it on increasing the factory uh, investment so that we have a more efficient system and get more money back to the growers? Yep. Do we want to put it into alt- diversifying the food system so we have a more stable food security system and are less dependent on coffee? And that kind of vibrant discussion hmm beautiful thing to see. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really good to speak. So what, what, are the, what are the downsides or the limitations
0: as far as you see it in terms of the, the traditional um,
1: fair trade certification? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've been, we've been real, actually quite a strong voice within the debate with, uh, with the Fair Trade Labeling Organization, which is the German-based certifier that's best known. Okay. And, and with Fair Trade USA which is the breakaway group in the US that we actually helped get going and it has since left the, that fair, that, the European system and so we've been a real strong voice in there saying listen, keep Fair Trade limited to small scale farmers right? great that there are plantations out there or large scale farms that have many workers and it's a great place to work and they do beautiful quality coffee or they have very good farm worker programs fantastic, there are businesses like that Those businesses can take care of themselves, they can command a premium in the market, let them run on their farm's name, let fair trade be limited to those marginalized, small-scale producers who otherwise don't have voice and and vote in in the international economic system. So we've been real real vocal about that, and including we voted with our feet about five years ago and left the fair trade labeling system Mm -hmm. and left the fair trade US system to go with the small producer symbol that we that we use on our coffee, and that the farmers who helped grow fair trade helped get started. So that's been it's been really good, vibrant debate to have. I think it's been really nice to see those things evolve. But those things are only evolving because shoppers are evolving. Consumers are just they got it and they understood the shade coffee debate. They understood the large aspects, large degree aspects of fair trade. So they're interested in different degrees of. of what the, where, where it's coming from and what the coffee tastes like and how much it costs and who's roasting it and as those growers have as those consumers have gotten more aware like the the standards that they've been looking for have grown more diverse sure and I think that's why you're seeing a, 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 a growth in like certification systems and, a, and but I don't see that as a bad thing I really see that as shoppers getting smarter and and voting with the dollars.
0: So. Yeah, I don't see it as a bad thing either. I see it as a potentially confusing thing because the, now there are yeah multiple different certification programs where there used to be one or two. Right. But I, I don't see that as a bad thing at all. Yeah. yeah. So what are your thoughts on some of the other certification programs? So there's traditionally Fair Trade, there's Rainforest Alliance, there's Shade Grown, there's bird friendly there's some of the other ones can you can you talk a little
1: bit about your experience with some of the one that has the most volume is called 4c or global coffee platform and that was really that was seemed like nestle was the main the um impetus behind that system to say well let's have something that's going on at the farm level where we have some degree of traceability and and sustainability i could argue if you're Got 150 years in the food business. You should have had that stuff already in place, <laughs> um, especially in when you've had times where your system was was really called in to start questioning about what you were doing. So yeah. that should have already been there. But but at the same time, that four C system carries about captures about two million pounds of uh, coffee, and and does have some programs that does have some degree of traceability and accountability and environmental sustainability built into it. It's mostly European large-scale roasters and large-scale Brazilian farmers, including cooperative large-scale farmers. Okay. So, so much more cooperative, not a co-op of campesino growers or real small-scale growers like you'd find in Latin America that we work with, but more like a cooperative like you'd find here in Wasco County where you know pretty good-sized family farms organized together. So the 4C program has its has its benefit benefit there. And the, um, the other ones that, that have just merged, Uts Certified, which was a pretty powerful program that grew out of a German initiative, but is not the most market-friendly name to call something, right? Yep. They, they've merged with Rainforest Alliance, right? And that, those, those standards, like the 4C program, have, are primarily a list of best practices, usually 14 to 17 criteria, and each farm is measured on these environmental and labor aspects, and um, to see how they're doing. There's no, uh, hey, if you don't get this done, you're out. There. Okay. It's like, hey, let's just try to. It's let's, hey, let's try to do better. But it's a pretty, a pretty comprehensive list of activities. More slated to the environmental than the social, economic like justice piece, which is, I think, you know, that's where we depart. But again, consumers can make those choices. So they, beach and rainforest, get about. It's about eight hundred thousand tons a year of coffee okay. going, and between them, those are it's a good eighty million dollars worth of revenue. About half of their revenue comes from those programs of certifying farms and and charging the fees to get that certified, and the other half of that money comes from donations and government grants. Okay, so it is like a quasi nonprofit, quasi thing. It works with big corporations and smaller entities, but Uts and Rainforest is much more. It's more best practices approach slanted toward the environmental. Okay. And my understanding
0: is, along that social justice piece, the the, the market price kind of floor that's set in with uh, fair trade and direct trade isn't necessarily included in
1: Rainforest Alliance. Is that right? Right, right. There's no there's no minimum price or or price premium for the social development aspect. Too. Okay. And there isn't really that backstop to say, well, if I'm paying twelve, fifteen dollars a pound in the grocery store, shouldn't the farmer get at least a, a cover the cost of production, yep. right? Which I would argue is easy to do when if you think about what you pay in the grocery store—that twelve to fifteen dollars—the highest fair trade minimum price, like we pay, is two dollars, right? It's, it's more than a small by any corporation, especially yeah. those that are booking ten percent profits. So, um, so any, but, but again, there is no, yeah, you're right. There's no price floor there. The, the fair trade labeling organization out of Germany, that's the one that's the best known fair trade certifier that has that $1.60 minimum okay. and has tried to stay mostly small holder. So it's primarily focused on family farmed coffee. And then the small producer symbol that we use, spp.coop. That's much more from the farmers, those small scale growers, only democratically organized co-ops. Okay. Yeah. Very cool right. so it's be wax poetic though yeah go ahead because go for it like that's a lot to think through how many different certifiers are there and to me the most exciting thing is, that's happened in the food business has been something that never touched sort of third party certification right because if you think about the organic industry you can also talk about the different aspects of the system we have which is a government system and government regulatory system but what consumers did with RBGH milk, especially in the Pacific Northwest, was stunning, right? There was a case where you had consumer interest, you had some farmer interest to have a cleaner food system, and consumers were so interested that the dairies started putting information on their package, which the government ruled illegal, right? They used to be RBGH-free milk, and the U.S. government said, you cannot put that on the package because we can't tell the difference between the two milks. There was so much consumer interest. The dairies were like, "Okay, we'll put a long sentence on here that explains this why we can't call it RBGH free milk." <laughs> but that the consumer interest was so strong and so long lasting that now there is no hormone-lit milk in the Northwest. All the dairies, all the farmers had moved away from that. What would be what, what would be a not an unsustainable farming system. So it's a real win by consumers to say hey, we're going to change the food system right? to benefit growers and benefit our own health. Mm-hmm. And you can have a certification program, you can have a government-run program, but when consumers get interested, it's nice to see the food system follow. And to me, that was the most exciting one. That's really interesting. Really have
0: you seen something similar to
1: that play
0: out in coffee yet? Or do you think it will?
1: I, I th- no, I don't think so. I think that, that milk one was unique yeah. because you're, it's not just – it's not like – some of the coffee certification programs have been helped by the government. It's not like the organic program that's been sanctified by the government. It's been one that was actively opposed by the government and still consumers overcame it. And so so I, so we haven't seen anything in that I think coffee because specialty coffee and fair trade issues grew up together. Yep. The interest in coffee was really widespread, it's really diffuse. So that's it's been a big difference. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. So with your, with your day to day responsibilities, with the organizations that you work with, are you mostly here in North America, or do you travel to Latin America and Peru still? Yeah,
1: we really tried to democratize that fun part of the job too. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was really tempting. And um, I have a good colleague, Todd Casperson, who's back at the Equal Exchange office, and you know he definitely could be on the airplane fifty weeks a year. And there's I could have a pretty fun travel schedule too, but the way because it's a worker on co-op, we really like to get lots of people involved and also you don't have to just shoulder the burden yourself. Sure. I got younger kids, so I go to Canada once a month, go to Peru once a year, go to Nicaragua every other every few years. That's what I want to do and that's about it. But we have somebody in the field all the time. Okay. So yeah, we just have four people return from Mexico. We have two people in Honduras this week. So you, we have people at the farm with those, with those democratically organized co-ops all the time. There's okay. always somebody there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. One of the
0: interesting things I think about coffee and coffee growers, at least as a consumer in the U.S., is mm-hmm. unlike milk or unlike anything that's farmed in the U.S., whether it's corn or sweet potatoes or whatever, yeah. most U.S. consumers never actually see a coffee plantation. Right. So, like, I can go visit my local dairy farm and and get a sense of like how that cow is raised and how it's cared for, but most consumers don't have that about coffee. Mm-hmm. And you travel with work, so can you describe for us like a coffee grower what what is their what is their work situation like? What is their work day
1: like? And what are their living conditions like? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I've had the chance to take about fifty different grocery store owners and managers to spend two-night homestay with the farmers <laughs> at different times over the years. So so yeah, the, the typical coffee farm family that we work with has about five acres of land, right? On that, you'll have about 3,000 coffee trees. Wow. You'll, all of those coffee trees are planted one meter by two meters apart with banana trees growing in, the, in between those rows, and then every fifth row, a large shade tree, usually a nitrogen-fixing shade tree. So really, when you look at it from Above, if you took an area view, you'd be like, that's a forest or a park. Hmm. When you get down there under those shade trees are these coffee trees, which are about usually a little taller than a person, and the real thin, thin uh, uh, trunk, flexible tree, but it looks a lot like a ch- the cherry trees we have here. Same leaf okay. size, and of course, the coffee bean is grows in a red cherry that um, that's hand harvested. Those, like I said, since coffee's 80, 70, or 80% of their income. Most of those five acres have coffee trees on them. Around the house will be a very robust vegetable garden and typically enough animals to provide all the protein for the house. So that that would, right now that's almost always chickens and two cows, right? So you've got that, you've got a house typically built by yourself, right? With either cinder block or cut adobe block and then um, a roof made of zinc, corrugated metal. Okay. And so, the, and so that that's on a mountainside. If you went and stayed there, you would think this is a three hundred dollar day, bread and breakfast because the views are gorgeous. They're huh. perfect. The farming is lovely, and everything is. Um, and well, I'll give you the story. This past July, I got to take my dad to visit one of the growers who worked a long time, and so he was stunned. It was the first time in his life he would actually he never had a meal that every single thing was grown in that on that farm. But the cheese, the eggs. The juice—that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, so you got a self self sustainable group. Those growers, are, those farm families are usually pretty large as far as numbers, right? You know, it's not like a two or three person household in the U.S. It's more usually six to eight person household. So you've got a somebody an older generation living in the house, and then you've got kids, sometimes grandkids there, and that that will have to walk oh, good 30-40 minutes to get to school. Okay, so you're always on foot. There's no most nobody has a car. So, and so you're usually walking both to do your farm work and, um, and, and for the kids will walk to school. I, I remember complaining about my commute in Boston <laughs> and then when Jen and I were living in Nicaragua, we were like, all right, well, let's go. And we met these growers and we met them and we're like, okay, let's go to the farm. And we walked an hour and a half. Up and I was like, that's a hard commute. <laughs>
0: so, so yeah. And so how big of a house is this? So it's a household of. Six to eight people, how big of a house, square footage wise? Yeah, or...
1: Typically four rooms. And one of the first things the, those farm families invested in when they got fair trade premiums, when they're part of a co op that had access to a more just uh, market, is they invested right away in their food security and childhood education. Nobody uses big words like that when you're talking about that's really what it was. And so the first thing everybody does is the kitchen, which is usually has just holes in the wall so for the wood smoke to go out, okay. chimneys were put in because okay. that whole like cooking in your in, by campfire in your, in your house, everybody recognizes the health dangers of that and so that was the first thing we saw them invest in is to get the kitchen smoke out because <laughs> it, it changes that whole environment. And then the kids' education part with the backpacks and school uniforms and school fees that those folks always put those those monies go first. And um, and the the other interesting dynamic about the coffee industry is when we we're looking at sustainable coffee, we're like, well, we, after you take the cherry fruit pulp off of the seed, the seed will be dried to become the coffee bean. We say, hey, compost that coffee pulp to make a nitrogen to make a rich fertilizer for your sure. coffee trees. No coffee farmers use that. You, they take that beautiful fertilizer, and that's for the vegetable garden. Okay. To grow their own food there. Okay. And then they'll use leaf litter and other compost for the the field. It's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So how much of, when when you said, you know, they put chimneys in when when they got the fair trade premiums, how much of that is directed by you guys in your organization? Like how much do you advise them or tell them what to do? And how much of it is just self-directed?
1: I I think it's almost always self-directed, right? Any Uh, co-op that's there is going to be a group of growers that some of whom are just kind of are part of the neighborhood and some of whom are real pioneer visionary leaders. And those pioneer visionary leaders are like, hey, we need a fair trade, fair, fair price for our coffee. And what, where are we going to take this group? And so they're, they will listen to those voices that say, hey, the kitchen place is is where you want to put those efforts or reading programs are where we want to put our, spend our fair trade premiums these years. And I think it's much more powerful to be fair to the growers through this system, like you are fair when you go to the farmer's market. Yep. And when you go to the farmer's market and pay twice as much for a cut of lamb that you would have paid at that grocery store, you don't tell the person, listen, take the extra five bucks and yeah. you go home. Yeah. That's <laughs> not what you should be doing. And you can't make that call. And I think we've really seen co-ops make you know, really smart decisions nice. about what to do. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So were you describing, when you, when you described kind of their living
0: situation, is that a coffee farming family that is in the fair trade model? Yes. So what what is, what is a family that isn't in the fair trade model and is getting paid less look like? Where are the differences there?
1: Yeah, yeah. Usually, you'll often see that a more, yeah, a more disrupted household that is, is not involved in the co-op really be... Um, kind of at the margins of survival. So the coffee okay. trees are in are not cared for, right? And so it's just a struggle to eat and usually some charity needs to be getting get to eat where the folks have to if they if when you're outside of the fair trade system, then you have might have to go look for paid labor. And of course, you're going to be working for somebody else and so it's it's, it's much more difficult situation and often traveling or people will migrate to the city. And then try to get back to help feed the rest of the family that didn't go to the city. And that is pretty... That can be a pretty dire situation. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. What's your favorite place to visit? In oh. terms of
0: coffee coffee growing world that you've been to?
1: Well, I mean, I alluded to it earlier. So, like, I've been doing this for a couple decades. And I got, got to take my dad to down to see some of the folks we've been working with that whole time. And so, I was up in Coyona, Ayabaca, in... Uh, in Huancabamba, Peru. And uh, that's in northern Peru, up by the border with Ecuador. And uh, just gorgeous area, you know, beautiful, like the Pacific Northwest is beautiful. but um, And a really impressive group, right? That's a group that, that you, when they were growing coffee and being kind of uh, abused by the single market buyer that was in that area, they were drying the coffee in the cherry, like Ethiopians do.
0: Uh, so like a natural. But they process knew what they, they were thing. doing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so it's a so it's a really it's smart coffee farmers. They've switched all of their coffee to washed coffee, really quickly. But in the last five years, because those farmers know how to grow um, natural coffee, they've there's been a we helped grow a specialty market for that. So nice. Like, oh, go back to what you were doing. yes yeah. it's really rich, fruity cup. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's it's really exciting.
0: cool. So what like, of the of the areas that you've worked with, um what what community do you feel like you guys have had the biggest impact on? And can you describe like what that community was like or what those growers were like before you got there and then and then what they're like now?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh certainly. I mean when during the wars in Central America, right? So those that group those groups in Nicaragua were when Jennifer and I were there in ninety eight, could tell stories about being shot at, right? By oh bullets that we helped buy, right? Yeah. And so that was a place where you had both wide-scale hunger in coffee, rich, beautiful, where you can grow almost anything. You had hunger in, in coffee-growing areas because the price was so low and the land system was so monopolized that there was nowhere to work and there was, you couldn't grow your own food. And those co-ops really that revolutionally changed that whole land-owning system. And that's a place where also the activists who... Join the co-op and help support it had earlier been the folks who were the literacy campaign workers. And so they'd gone community to community. My friend's birthday, Rosario Castellón, it's her birthday today. And she was a, yeah, she was a literacy trainer and then became a co-op manager. Oh, wow. Because she'd met, worked with every group to help them learn how to read and write. And so like when you see those, 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 the children of those folks are in college now, right? Or they're, yep. they're, they're studying, they're, they're pursuing other jobs. And so it's been in one generation, you've just had a really strong leap forward. And we went, I was back there last year, and to see paved roads, hospitals, crosswalks, elementary schools in areas that were extremely remote, only walkable and subject to violence, it's stunning. It's wow. Stunning to see. Yeah. And that's over, what, two decades? Two decades, one generation. That's yeah, really so proud To have be, played to be a small, small part of that is extremely uh, great privilege. Very cool. What's your number one
0: can't leave home without thing that you take with you when you travel?
1: Mm, I've stopped doing that. So now I (laughs) go empty handed. (laughs) (laughs) Just buy luggage and stuff to bring back. Yeah, yeah. So it's been fun for that. So yeah. yeah. Yep. Left. Yep. Leave, leave everything home leave and, bring, everything, and bring, bring stuff back. Yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: What do you think the number one issue facing the coffee industry as a whole right now is?
1: Um, I think we, we're we not, not going to know what to do. I think the micro-roasting trend here is not going to know what to do with success. I think you're already seeing it with the intelligentsia, Pete's Coffee, selling out to a venture capital firm and... Them not really knowing what they want to do with that with that business, and so it's been a really nice boom of specialty coffee. We've had a lot of really nice micro roasters, and that whole question of hey, when you love to do something and you do it and you do it well and it gets big, and then you there's the question: give it to your kids, give it to somebody to maximize the profits, let it go bankrupt. Like we we're not we we see we're not figuring that out now in the coffee industry, like the family. Family grocery industry figured out twenty years ago, and it's one reason I really like the model that supports cooperatives because cooperatives can can bring in new members and retire out successful members, and that way you have some sustainable stability and growth in in rural communities. So so for me, that's one reason why that that democratically organized smallholder approach to fair trade coffee is is more exciting than a specialty niche roast or the micro lot.
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah. I think we're definitely seeing that. I saw it with Pete's blue bottle recently. I mean, so it's
1: yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's a great it's, question. And there's a lot of a lot of really nice roasters across oh yeah. the Pacific Northwest. And you're oh like, yeah. In ten years, what are you going to do? How many of them are going <laughs> to be independent? <laughs> right. right.
0: Yeah. That's a, it's a big question.
1: Yeah, it's a great one.
0: Um, how do you how do you make your coffee at home? I, so you mentioned French press earlier. Is that kind of your your standard yeah, brewing for, method? For me, a uh,
1: French press of Northern Peruvian French roasted coffee is perfect because you get that nutty, kind of a corky wood in there on top of a sweet caramel, so I really like that mm. aspect to it. Um, Jennifer Jennifer more prefers a hard Central American that has that fruity, kind of a red wine flavor to it, um, and is a little more clean finishing. Okay. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, so she likes that part. And then my youngest son is starting to drink coffee, so he's more of a Melita filter guy.
0: Okay. Yeah. And how old is he
1: now? He's 60. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's getting into it
0: early. Well. (laughs) Yeah. So So I don't have any more questions for you. Do you have anything that you want to throw out there or end with? Well, let me ask. What's your favorite cup of coffee? I'll take a recommendation from you. Ooh. So my favorite most recent is uh, a coffee from Coava in Portland. Oh, yeah. It's called Colenso. It's a natural... um, Natural process Ethiopian. Oh, nice! It's it's nice. Yeah. it's straight blueberry. It's, oh, great! It's, yeah, Quavo's great. Yeah. Great
1: roaster. Yeah, so. yeah. fantastic.
0: Good. Um, so yeah, that's that's my favorite recently. Um, awesome. Where can where can people find your organization? So what what website would you direct them to, or email, or social yeah.
1: media, or whatever? Yeah, I think equalexchange.coop op okay. is the place to go because. Now it's easier to – it's less expensive to order from your house than to buy it from a, a grocery store that's marketing up. So, so I think that's the big switch there. But then at most any natural food store should have a good selection. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Well,
0: very good. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. There you have it, guys. I hope you found that conversation as interesting as I did to record. If you didn't pick up on this during the interview, Tom and I really had fun. Uh, and I hope you guys did too. I Again, I would like to really thank Tom for agreeing to come on the podcast and share his experiences. Awesome interview, awesome conversation. To end this episode of the podcast, I want to take a few minutes and expand on something that we talked about during the interview. I know that all of the certification programs can be a bit confusing. There's a lot of them. But I think one of the major things that these different programs allow us to do as consumers is to vote with our dollars, just like Tom said. You get to pick what matters to you and support that cause or mission. And I'm not talking about donating money here. Do you really care about social justice and care that hardworking farmers get their fair share of the coffee profits? Well, then buy and support fair trade certified or small producer certified coffee like you can buy on equalexchange.coop. Do you care passionately about the environment and want to support an organization that seeks to limit the environmental impact of coffee farming? Well, then you might want to focus on Rainforest Alliance certified coffee. You have a choice. Are you passionate about supporting local small business in your community. Then find your closest specialty coffee roaster and support them by buying their products. If you want all the above, that's an option too. Talk to your local coffee roaster about how the coffee was grown and how you want the coffee grown and how you want the growers treated. See if they have an option for you on the shelf. Or find a coffee that's certified as fair trade and organic. Or... Fair trade and Bird Certified, and buy it. This just doesn't happen just with coffee here either. Do you hate how the days of the local family farmer have been replaced by large industrial farms where we don't know where our food comes from or how it's processed? Well, then stop buying the cheapest produce possible at the grocery store and instead support your local farmer, at the farmer's market. That's how you enact change. Collectively, we have immense power as consumers. We incorrectly tend to look at the role of a consumer as just going to the store or shopping online, buying something and consuming it. It's an incomplete view. Every time you open your wallet, and you pull out your cash or credit card, you are voting. Every time you save money, for that matter, you're voting. This happens regardless of if you're consciously voting and supporting a company or a cause or not. If you buy something simply because it's the cheapest option, the economy and businesses will get that message and they're going to produce more cheap shit because you're telling them that's important. If instead you buy products like fair trade coffee or coffee that is grown organically and sustainably where the coffee farmers are paid a fair price and treated as partners, then you're making a statement that those things matter. Even if those things cost just a little bit more than cheap coffee. As a result, the economy will do more of those things and produce more of those products because you and collectively we are saying that matters. We're literally shaping the world one purchase at a time, whether we know it or not. I know what world I want to help create, both in general and in the coffee industry. Do you? So, the next time you're shopping, either for food or coffee or whatever's on your shopping list, keep that in mind. So, with that, I'm going to step off my soapbox and drop my microphone and walk off the stage. Just one. Quick reminder, don't forget to enter to win a one-pound bag of free home-roasted coffee that I will roast personally for you. I detailed this contest in last week's episode. What What I need you to do is give a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram and send me a message on Instagram with the username that you use for your iTunes review. Alternatively, you can send me an email and and let me know the same thing. Um, You still have time to enter, but it only goes for a few more days. I'm going to select two winners at random on February 1st of 2018. So hurry and get your free delicious coffee. I really appreciate you guys. I appreciate your support. I will see you all next week for another episode. Take care and go out there and create the world that you want.